You are listening to Real Life and Other Fantasies, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello, fellow storytellers, and welcome to this edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies. In our conversation today, I have a fellow writer, baseball fan, and political junkie, and I have no idea which direction this mental road trip will take us. Michael Freeman, I'm honored to have you join us for this for today's storytelling journey. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Melvin. I was I was greatly uh, honored and flattered when you asked me to do this, and uh, knowing that you and I have many similar interests in baseball, in writing, in family. Um, I think uh, we shouldn't have any trouble finding a lot to talk about today. I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. So let's go right into it. So, Michael, you're currently the executive vice president of the Healthcare Leadership Council, as well as a freelance writer. And in the past, you were a communications director for several congressmen and senators. So naturally, we're going to begin this conversation by talking about baseball. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us how you became a baseball fan of the Minnesota Twins. And I'm first wondering if you've seen the movie Little Big League. Uh, I have seen the movie Little Big League. It wouldn't rank among my top <laughs> 10 favorite baseball movies, even even with the Twins uh, reference in it. Uh, but, yeah, I became a baseball fan probably at about the age of 9 or 10 um, when my family moved to South Dakota. And uh, uh, all, the, 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 all the, we lived in a little town in South Dakota of about 1,500 people. And uh, all the kids in my on my block were all big Twins fans, and uh, that sort of became my uh, acquaintance with baseball. Right to the point where, even in fourth grade, they would uh, bring the TV into study hall to allow us to watch the uh, Orioles play the Twins in the '69 uh, American League playoffs. And that uh, from there, my interest in baseball uh, just grew and grew, as well as. Uh, being a, a huge Twins fan my entire life. Yeah, it's always great when they when teachers and, and administrators in schools incorporate um, local sports activities into the academic calendar. It Some teachers don't like that, but I think it makes for great memories, and I think it builds bonds with teachers too. Yeah, it, it's one of my great memories is uh, in 69 and 70, the uh, Twins um, – wept each of those years by the Orioles in the American League uh, playoffs back when you only had one playoff round to get to the World Series. And uh, even though the the outcome wasn't great, I still have those fond memories of the camaraderie of sitting in the study hall room and uh, cheering on Harmon Killebrew and Tony Oliva and Rod Carew in those uh, playoff games. It's still a vivid memory uh, even here more than 50 years later. Nice. All right. So, as a lifelong Twins fan, um, you had a, a great opportunity for a 60th birthday gift to do something that most fans don't get a chance to do. And I want to talk about that. So um, your wife obviously understood the assignment when it came time for you to turn 60 years old. And can you tell us a little bit about about, about the gift she gave you for that special occasion? Yeah. Well, it, it's kind of funny it came about that way because so many times when you see someone throw out a a ceremonial first pitch at a major league baseball game. It's because they uh, saved some kids from a burning fire or they donated a liver to someone. 
but in my case, it just because my, my wife bought it for me. So uh, I go into this story with a little bit of humility to start with. But uh, knowing that I've, I'm a lifelong Twins fan, and by the way, my wife was also a baseball fan. She grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and went with her dad to a lot of uh, Washington Senators games as a kid, um, So, uh, which eventually moved him, the team that eventually moved to Minnesota and became the Twins. Um, so she's a baseball fan, too. And in our marriage, she sort of adopted my Twins fandom. So she's become a Twins fan as well. As well. And so we started uh, a few years ago, we started making a trip every year from our home in Maryland to uh, the Target Field in Minneapolis and catch a few games every summer. And on those trips, we would go to a a fundraising dinner hosted by the uh, Twin Cities Boys and Girls Club as a, a fundraiser where the Twins players were the waiters and bartenders. Just a great fun time. And during one of these dinners, she had our kids keep me distracted because she knew I'd try and hold her arm down uh, while she started bidding on the opportunity for me to throw out the first pitch in the the next season. And she won that bid. And that started months of nerve wracking anxiety for me, because all I could think about is I've got this one moment, one moment in time where I could fail immensely and just have a nightmare in my mind for the rest of my life of having uh, completely mishandled that pitch. And a lot of my friends, knowing um, of the pressure to do this, were sending me over and over again YouTube videos of celebrities throwing the ball 10 feet over the catcher's head to the backstop. Uh, They sent me one of 50 Cent throwing the ball straight into the ground. Uh, In fact, two days before the event, uh, Bill Walton, the famous basketball center, uh, missed the catcher by about 20 feet to the left. I remember that. So my 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 nerves were heightened for days. I, no, I'd say for, for months before that pitch, I would take my oldest daughter who lived near us and we would go out to a field near our house and I would keep throwing. We measured off the 60 feet, six inches, and I would throw pitch after pitch after pitch to her. And I probably threw a thousand, two thousand pitches to prepare for this one pitch. So we get to the day and I think my anxiety was at its highest and my confidence was at its lowest because my daughter and I went to a little field they have by the Viking Stadium in Minneapolis that day. And I was all over the place. I could not throw a strike if my life depended on it. I I, I was all over the ballpark with, with my, my throws. And uh, my wife kept telling me leading up to it, you're a thrower. You're not a pitcher. Stop trying to act like you're a pitcher. So, um, you know, we get to that evening. We, uh, I have uh, uh, dozens of college friends there. All, all of these people that I, I was in a dorm with at South Dakota state university, people from my hometown of Freeman, South Dakota were there. We had probably 60 or 70 people at an Irish pub near target field to uh, gather before the game to cheer me on. So um, it was uh, it was a nervous time. And wouldn't you know it, before the game starts, we have a two-hour rain delay. So I am standing in the concourse, just running my arm in the windmill motion, just trying to keep loose, while the rain keeps coming and coming and coming, and it just won't stop. And then finally, the, uh, the the two hour rain delay ends. They finally escort me out into the field, 
and my uh, my wife and my youngest daughter were out there on the field with me, and the rain starts falling again. And my youngest daughter says, you have got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> and so uh, we wait a little bit longer. And before the event, a, a great guy, Howard Sinker, a columnist for the Minneapolis Star Tribune, had, who I know like I know you from Twitter, had been um, communicating with me and saying, you know, they're going to tell you when you go out to do this that you can't stand on the mound. Just ignore them. This is your moment. You stand on the mound no matter what they say to throw that pitch. I thought, okay, I'll do that. Well, with the rain delay, um, they were working on the mound to get it ready for the game. And I start, I start, once they introduce me, I start walking toward the mound and the groundskeeper looks at me and says, don't even think about it. <laughs> and so, uh, so, so that, that set that plan aside. So I stop right in front of the mound, get the ball ready. I, I, my hands are sweating. I've got it in the uh, two seam fastball grip, fastball being a complete misnomer for this and, uh, and uh, let it fly. And I short hop it right in front of the mound. And you can see the anguish on my face when I do it. Because I it, not, not a YouTube moment of, of embarrassment, but still short hopping in front of the mound. But it was still a great moment. My friends were up in the stands cheering for me. I got to do a little hat tip to them. And to this day, I keep that ball on my desk with the uh, dirt mark on it where I uh, short hopped it, where it's, it's sort of a little reminder that you don't have to be perfect to have a really great memory. And, and being at that moment on the field of a team I have loved for decades with my, my picture on the scoreboard and my name being announced over the PA system, um, just one of the really great moments in life. And, you know, wonderful that my uh, wife gave that to me. It sounds like you had everything. You had the announcer announce your name. You got a chance to uh, go out on the mound, throw a first pitch. Unfortunately, you had to wait through the rain delay. It sounds like the one thing you didn't have was a walk-up song. I, I didn't have a walk-up song. I, uh, that That's a uh, great uh, – and I have always known what my walk-up song would be. Um, it would be the uh, Power Station, which was the group made up of former members of Duran Duran and Robert Palmer. Yes. Uh, their remake of uh, T-Rex's Bang a Gone would be my uh, walk-up song had I had that opportunity. That's awesome. I've had a walk-up yeah. song, too, for years and years. I would use um, Those Shoes by the Eagles. Excellent. That's a, that, would be, that would be a great <laughs> walk-up song. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. So I've, ne- I've never met your wife. I already like her because she obviously gives great mm-hmm. gifts. So um, getting the chance to throw out the first pitch of your childhood team, I'm sure it was an incredible experience, but it makes me curious. Uh, what was your first pitch, so to speak, the first pitch in quotations when you met her, your wife and did you bounce that pitch? Uh, yeah, I actually, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I did sort of bounce that pitch and it's, it's uh, amazing that we have been uh, married for 40 years, given the way I handle things at the beginning. And interestingly, our, our, our meeting, our first meeting revolved around baseball as well. Um, I was at the time a press secretary on Capitol Hill for um, Senator Jim Abner from South Dakota. Um, wonderful man, uh, uh, passed away a little over 10 years ago. And my wife was the assistant press secretary for Senator S.I. Hayakawa, a uh, Republican from California. And she was organizing a... Um, 
a an event called Beer, Bus, and Baseball, which would be a press secretary's uh, baseball bus trip up to Camden Yards to see the Orioles play and just have a kind of night of camaraderie. So uh, a mutual friend of ours said, hey, I know this guy in Senator Abner's office who would probably love to do this, and uh, and and you ought to invite him to go along. So she called me and invited me, and she said she thought from um, my voice at the time that I sounded much older than I was. I was um, probably 24 at that time, and she thought I sounded like a 40-year-old DJ on the phone. So she said, well, there's, there's, there's no, no future prospects with this guy. Um, uh, she was 28 at the time. And, uh, so, uh, she came and collected my money and we chatted a little bit and, uh, and, um, the event, the, the, the event was essentially called off for a lack of attendance. So she returned my money. And, uh, at that time I, uh, had not I didn't have the nerve. I was I was a nerdy guy. Uh, I'll, I'll admit that from the start. I was no uh, suave Don Juan type. I was a uh, very nerdy guy and uh, didn't have the uh, gumption to ask her out, even though I thought she was this incredibly attractive woman. And uh, I kept thinking about it and mulling it over uh, for a long time after that. And I actually faxed her office with an invitation to go out to dinner with me. Didn't ask her face to face. I sent a fax, sent a fax to ask her to go out to dinner with me. And amazingly, she said yes, uh, which I, to this day, I can't believe. So yes, I did bounce that first pitch pretty badly. And, uh, but, um, you know, here we are, 40 years of marriage, um, three kids nice. and three, gra- three grandchildren uh, later. Nice. And three dogs. And uh, well, at one time, three dogs. We're at one three, dog right now. One but, dog. Uh, okay. We have at our peak had three dogs. Yes. Okay. So thanks a lot again for for sharing your stories. Um, we need to take a short break for a quick message from the sponsor. When we return, I'm going to ask you about your childhood in South Dakota and the time you wrote a speech for Oprah. Can I be honest with you? The American healthcare system is an absolute mess. It's hard to get the coverage that you need at a price that you can afford. And sometimes even if you have employer coverage, if you try to add on family members, it'll send you to the poorhouse. Hey, my name is Marty Duran. I'm an independent licensed health advisor working out of Nashville, Tennessee. I'm licensed in 31 states across the nation. There's no cost to have a conversation about what works best for your health insurance coverage. So whether you have a group plan and it's getting expensive, or whether you have COBRA, which is always expensive, or whether you're wondering whether you get credits on the uh, ACA, Obamacare, the government health care plan run through the states, or whether it would work better for you to have a private policy, I'd be glad to talk to you about your options. There's no cost. There's no obligation. Just call or text 404-431-4581. That's 404-431-4581. We're back with our guest, Michael Freeman. So your name is Michael Freeman. You were raised in Freeman, South Dakota, and you graduated from Freeman High School. 
my question for you is, was your family the only family lived in that little town? <laughs> you know, the funny part about this, and we just got done talking about my wife. My wife loves to tell people she thought she was marrying money because uh, she figured my family owned the town. Uh, but no, it was uh, just a, a strictly coincidental thing. My uh, father was a traveling salesman. Uh, he sold livestock feed to uh, farmers. And uh, we moved around a lot in my early years. I was born in Kansas City. We moved. We lived in Chicago when I was very young, moved to Omaha. And then um, his, they transferred him to a territory in South Dakota. And he just happened across this really wonderful town by the name of Freeman and thought it's, it's karma. It, it, it's meant to be. So we moved to Freeman when I was in the fourth grade. And uh, it was a, it was one of the great life changing experiences for me. If you can have such a thing at 10 years old, but we lived in cities where um, I was really confined to my yard because we lived on busy streets with lots of traffic going around. And I was just a little kid and, and my yard was my entire horizon. And uh, moving to Freeman, a little town of 1,500 people, it was a it was the quintessential small town experience. I mean, you could get on your bike, ride all over town as long as you came home when the six o'clock sirens blew and uh, you knew that was dinner time. And you were out all day playing uh, baseball or football with your uh, friends around town. And it was, uh, um, you know, to this day, um, some of my... Uh, really most valued friends are from that small town experience in Freeman, South Dakota. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Yeah. Old friends are the best friends. Exactly. All right. So I'm sure you had a lot of dreams for your life when you were student council president at Freeman High School. Have you done all the things that you imagined then? I'm sure you've done some things that you never could have imagined at that point in your life. But have you done all the things that you imagined when you were in high school? Well, well, Melvin, at one point in my, my school days, I did dream of being um, second baseman for the Minnesota Twins, but obviously that did not come to be, and uh, my inability to hit a curveball, or really most of the fastballs that came my way, uh, probably played a, a, a pretty big role in that. But I've, I've been really fortunate in, uh, in getting to do the things I've wanted to do in life. I don't, I don't have a lot of, re I don't have really any regrets in life. I've I've been a journalist. I've, uh, you know, written for newspapers. I've uh, written a one-act play. I've uh, written a book when I was very, very young. Um, I've, I've written for some incredible people. I've uh, been in the uh, lobbying business and worked on some pretty, uh, pretty significant, meaningful issues. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's been, I've, I've even had a, a president of the United States throw me out throw me out of his hotel room in a profanity-filled display. <laughs> so I, I can't say it's it's been an uneventful life, and I, I'm grateful for it. So we'll, we'll come back to that story because I definitely want to hear the details. Yeah. But um, this is a pretty good segue for that. So um, I've written speeches for three men who served as state governors. Um, two were in Texas, and then one was in Maryland. And all three eventually ran for president but I've never written for any celebrities. So can you tell us about the time you wrote a speech for Oprah Winfrey? Yeah, and that was a, a really fun experience in, in many different ways. Uh, let me start out by, by noting that I, a business partner and I had started a little PR firm called the Freeman Masters Group. And this is going to be a winding way of how we got to, M3, to Oprah in the, the pre-email days. 
um, we, we started the Freeman Masters Group, and one of our clients was uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and GW wanted to promote a class they had just started on sports marketing and management that was going to be taught by Stedman Graham, who was Oprah Winfrey, who is Oprah Winfrey's significant other. So we did a lot of work for Stedman at that time, promoting his class. And I did some writing on the side for Stedman. And I uh, had sent in some uh, speeches for him and did some work on a, a sports column he had in a, a monthly sports magazine. And a lot of fun projects with him. Well, there was no email in those days. So everything we submitted to Stedman was faxed to their apartment. As you can see from the story of my wife, faxes play a big role in my life. (laughs) The facts of life. uh, The the facts (laughs) of life. And uh, so we faxed everything to his apartment. And as we came to learn, Oprah would pick this material off the fax machine and read it. And so out of the clear blue one day, I got a call and it's Oprah Winfrey on the phone and saying, I'm about to receive this award from the um, national uh, television producers in New York City. Would you write my acceptance speech? And, uh, you know, I was so uh, flabbergasted and uh, staggered by it that um, I immediately agreed without, of course, uh, setting a price for my work. So to this day, I don't remember if I ever got paid for that work. But that's that's secondary to just the art of having been able to do it. And so that led into doing a few um, projects for Oprah over the years. But one of the great memories I have about that is um, she invited my business partner and I to dinner with her and Stedman in Chicago. And so we flew out to Chicago and we had dinner with them in downtown Chicago in a restaurant that she owned there. And so she's regaling us with stories all night of, um, you know, how she gave Christmas gifts to her staff by opening up the Marshall Field department store and letting them just grab in a 30 minute time frame anything they wanted. Just great stories like that. And uh, as we're dinner's over and we're leaving and we go out the door, there is, I hadn't stopped to think about what a dinner with Oprah would be like, but we go out the door and there's all the Chicago version of the paparazzi out there. There's 10, 12 photographers with flashbulbs snapping and crowds of people wanting autographs. And uh, my business partner and I, um, who were probably captured in the photos with portions of our head behind Oprah, um, we are. we just said to ourselves, hey, let's soak this in. We're never going to have another moment like this in our lives. So yeah, it was, uh, it was quite memorable. That's, that's great. You, you didn't realize that you would be able to top that years later by having a, we'll call it a standing ovation with the twins. It may not have been standing, but we'll call it that. People don't have to know. My friends from my dorm at South Dakota State did stand for me at that. So I did have at least a 10 person standing ovation after that pitch. Which is probably half the capacity of the crowd at that point. After a two-hour rain delay, yeah, it was the, the crowd was whittled down some, even though it was in the middle of a pennant race against uh, two teams battling for the Central Division. So there was, there was still a nerve-wracking crowd there. All right, so tell us the story that you sort of teased earlier with being ejected from the hotel room, and, and tell us those details. Yeah, this was one of those things where I think a lot of people would have been mortified by it. But I, I'm I'm like you, Melvin. I think in terms of stories, and I thought, man, I'm going to have this story for the rest of my life. <laughs> so um, we were in the middle of the 1980 U.S. Senate race. I was the campaign press secretary for uh, 
then Congressman Jim Abner, the Republican nominee, and we were running against a four-term incumbent, George McGovern, the former Democratic presidential nominee in 1972. McGovern was an institution in South Dakota, uh, no, three terms, three terms in the U.S. Senate, and we were trying to defeat him. Well, it was it was the Reagan year. It was a year when Republicans were going to sweep into Congress of big numbers. And we had a, a very big lead in our race. We were leading by probably 20 points in the polls. And my boss, Jim Abner, was by his own admission, not a great debater. And McGovern was a master debater from college all the way through his political career. So we made a strategic decision that we were not going to debate. And, um, you know, I think today, I think with all the pressure on candidates to not do that kind of thing, I don't, I don't know that we would have done that today. But at that time, um, we, made the, we made the strategic decision not to debate. And it was a huge deal in the South Dakota media because McGovern was doing press conferences every day to call us out for not debating. So at that time, Gerald Ford was coming in to South Dakota to do some fundraising for us and do some uh, media in uh, Sioux Falls and Rapid City, the two big metropolitan areas in South Dakota. So we had talked to Gerald Ford's staff. We wanted to make sure we didn't step in it on this debate issue and have him say the wrong thing when we got to the press conference. So we um, set up a briefing. The campaign manager and I were going to the Sioux Falls Holiday Inn um, the day before the press conference to brief President Ford on uh, this issue and what, what he needed to say. We had his response all worked out. I remember he had a staff member named Chip who said, yeah, you guys come on over, come on over. We'll, uh, we'll have you sit down with the president and get this all worked out. So unbeknownst to us, um, before he flew into Sioux Falls at an event in Omaha, and this will take you back kind of to the Chevy Chase imitations on Saturday Night Live, um, President Ford had stepped in a hole in the tarmac in the, uh, at the airport in Omaha and severely sprained his knee. So we walked into his hotel room. Chip, the aide, lets us in, and he said, he whispers to us, I don't know if this is going to happen. And at that moment, Gerald Ford, in a bathrobe, comes out of his room, sees the campaign manager, I standing there in the doorway, and says, get them the bleep out of here right now. And so, yeah, we turned around and hightailed it out of the room. And the postscript of that story is at the press conference the next day, a reporter who is today one of my best friends um, with the Sioux Falls newspaper asked, um, President Ford, do you believe candidates have an obligation to debate their opponent? And Ford pounds the podium and says, any candidate who's the least bit patriotic and forthright will debate their opponent. And my candidate just lost all the color out of his face right then. And uh, to this day, he, he referred to Gerald Ford forever after as that GD Ford. And uh, But to me, I got a great story out of it. I was thrown out of a, uh, a suite by a president of the United States with, uh, with an F-bomb. So uh, nice. that was a that, that's a story I could live on for years. So do you have any other stories from across the spectrum of your career that you'd like to share with us? 
Oh gosh, um, yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, there's been a lot of fun things over the years. Um, we uh, the the political the political game just lends itself to a lot of great stories. So I, I remember one of my favorites is a New York meets South Dakota type of story, and um, Jack Hemp, who is really one of my favorite all time politicians, one of one of the people I just have respected the most in American politics, and I wish. I wish more Republicans today were like Jack Kemp. Um, but Jack Kemp came out to South Dakota several times for political events. And it was during that 1980 campaign that uh, we had Jack Kemp out with us in Watertown, South Dakota, which was a town his ancestors had helped found. And uh, so we were doing some events up there. And Jack had the uh, the, the New York brashness in very, you know, laid back, stayed South Dakota. And we went in, we had done all of the events that morning. And I was with our boss, Senator Abner, some staff people, uh, the other senator from South Dakota at that time, Larry Pressler and Jack Kemp. And we go into a little cafe in Watertown for uh, for lunch after all of the events are over. And, and Kemp is just loud, brash, boisterous, and he is lobbying my boss, Jim Abner, as hard as could be how he had to base his whole campaign on the Jack Kemp, Kemp Roth tax cut plan, that 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 would win him the campaign if he just talked about the Jack Kemp tax cuts all of the time. And it's senior citizen day at the cafe. So everybody in there is over 70 years old. And, you know, they're all eating their lunch specials and we could tell the conversation is slowly getting quieter because Kemp's getting louder and everybody's turning their attention to our table, which is making everyone else at our table very nervous. And at one point, Jack Kemp goes, and I'll, I'll clean it up for your audience. Um, he goes, Jim, you got this guy McGovern by the testicles. He didn't say testicles. You got this guy McGovern by the testicles. Oh, you just got to squeeze. And he said that as loud as could be. And it was like church. A hush fell over the restaurant. And uh, Senator Abner was so nervous, he immediately escaped to the restroom. And Jack Kemp just said, well, I guess I'm not in New York anymore. <laughs> that, that's also one of, one of my favorite stories from, awesome. the, uh, from the campaign trails. That's great. <laughs> so um, earlier you mentioned having written a book when you were younger, and I want to ask you about any future plans of writing a book. But first, I want to hear about the book you already wrote. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's not a New York Times bestseller by any means. But uh, when I was in high in, in high school and even some in college, I wrote for the hometown Freeman, South Dakota newspaper. So so people knew me from that, from my byline in the newspaper, doing mostly sports, but an occasional news story. And a neighboring town, Menno, South Dakota, um, was having its um, 100th anniversary. And so they, they hired me to write a book um, called Menno, The First 100 Years. And it was while I was home from college over the summer. And they just, they, they just brought over these boxes and boxes and boxes of old historical society papers, old newspapers, everything they had collected over the years, not really categorized at all. It hadn't been, been organized in any sense. It were just boxes of raw material. And so um, I spent uh, my summer just sort of collating all that material and then uh, uh, putting it into uh, book form 
And what I still remember the most about it is those were pre-computer days because I'm old. And uh, I did it on an old Smith Corona typewriter um, that was before the automatic, um, the selectric uh, error uh, erasing function had them. So I had the whiteout tape that the... uh, the, the guy from the monkeys uh, yes. uh, had, had a hand in invention. Yes. yes. And Michael Nesman Michael had a hand Nesman, in invention. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so I had just the whiteout. And so I, I still am amazed to this day that I made it through a, I don't know, three or 400 page book, um, okay. uh, just constantly making errors and having the whiteout them and, and somehow got it done that summer, which um, I think that the writing was less of a Herculean effort than the typing was. Yeah, people today have no idea how difficult it was. The the struggle was real back then for this, typing. And I str- actually took a typing class when I was in high school. I was the only I, boy I in the class well. yeah. because I, I knew I wanted to be a newspaper reporter and I knew I'd have to be able to type and type yeah. accurately. The the typing class was probably one of the most valuable classes I took in high school because I, I was like you. I wanted to be a reporter and uh and uh, that typing class was invaluable. One of my jobs when I was in college was uh, I worked at the uh, Brookings Daily Register on uh, Tuesday and Friday nights when all of the high school basketball games were being played in the region. And I was the lone guy in the newsroom taking the phone calls from the coaches with the uh, box scores of the high school basketball games. And so I had to write up um, probably 20 basketball games a night on a typewriter. Um, sitting there and and have it there ready for the layout guy to do the uh, the next morning, and yeah, I don't think people today would fathom um, doing that on a type on a typewriter and in tiny tiny little agate print. That's exactly. probably not even a word you hear anymore. I, no. I used to do that um, at a freelance job working for the Houston Post when I was a young journalist, doing the same kind of thing, waiting for coaches to call in on Friday night to get high school base football scores, and I'd have to write up a two or three paragraph story and, and put in the football stats for the Houston, the Houston post newspaper before it was, it went yeah, defunct yeah. or was bought by the Houston Chronicle. Yeah. You and I were doing this, the same type of job. Yeah. Yes. All right. So do you have any plans for a future book? You know, I, I, I envy you because you've written two, two very successful books and I, I have not really worked in the long form like that. And as much as I want to do it, I'm not confident in my abilities to do so. My writing today is is really short form. I uh, in my freelance writing work, I do um, often sometimes six or seven ghost written op eds a week. Um, you know, I've written sports columns uh, uh, as I referenced before. I've, I've written a one one act play. I don't know if I could do a three act play. I did a one act play, um, but I'm I'm such. I'm such a uh, spent years now in short form writing as much as I want to. I don't know if I have that long form in me, but I may give it a shot. I may give it a shot one day because there's something nagging at me inside to, uh, to give it a try. Every, I think every writer has a, a secret or not so secret dream to, to write a book, whether it's um, fiction or nonfiction. I think every, because when you're a writer, you, think you can write anything it's obviously not true for everybody but i think a lot i always say a writer is somebody who writes you don't have to have a degree in writing to be a writer yeah and and if you if you if you do a lot of writing um you 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 want to write about in in every form on every topic 
when you get the opportunity. I think I think that's one of the things I greatly enjoy about writing, and I think it is um, true for you as well. That it uh, it takes you in so many different directions, and I think I'm a more well-read person um, and probably versed in more subjects because of of how many different things I've had to, to write about over the years. That you you have to be a quick study um, to be able to uh, you know pump out a speech or an op-ed on a topic you may not have a, a much of a familiarity with and you learn how to read material very, very quickly and, and absorb it, not in a academic sort of way, but absorb it in a practical way that allows you to regurgitate that information out in the form it needs to come out in. I'm sure we could do a whole episode just on yeah. the, the science of political speech writing or any type of speech writing for that mm-hmm. matter. But we don't we don't have time for that now. We'll we'll talk about it offline sometime yes. or on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. That would be a great conversation. It would but, be. Um, as we're winding down the interview, um, I'd just like to take some time to offer you for you to extend one more story or any kind of a piece of advice you might have. Do you have any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, that, uh, that's a great open-ended opportunity. And I, I, it's something I've sort of given some thought to over the years in the unlikely event I'm ever asked to give a commencement speech or something. Uh, but I think one of the lessons that I've certainly taken to heart over the years um, as someone who, like all of us, has had ups and downs in their, uh, in their professional life is uh, never let yourself be defined by your lowest moment. I, I think there have been lows in life. I've I've been fired from a job that I loved. Um, I've worked for a truly terrible, terrible boss who um, was a member of Congress who I won't name. But I, uh, I'm going to interject with a story on that because it's a fun karma kind of story. But I uh, worked for a, a a a. If you imagine the worst kind of politician, this guy was it. And I, I worked for him for six months. He was cruel to his staff, just terribly cruel to his staff. He um, called our legislative director an F, a fat expletive uh, many, many times. He, um, you know, cheated his constituents in many ways, just a, a horrible person. And so I got out of there after six months. And where the thing comes around full circle is that once he left Congress, he became a lobbyist. And he wasn't a very good lobbyist. And at one point, he was he was really close to retirement anyway. And he had just one client, a uh, major um, consumer food company. And my daughter was a lobbyist for that consumer food company. (laughs) And when they decided to get rid of him because he wasn't a very good lobbyist, my daughter got to fire him. So anyway, that's a that's kind of one of those full full circle stories that it's not a very nice person kind of story, but it because it involves a bit someone being fired, but it brought me a certain degree of satisfaction. But anyway, back to the life lesson, it is to me that you're going to have really low moments in life and in, in work and in life, and I've had them. And it would be so easy to let yourself be defined by that and to let that affect the course. But um, and I think this fits because this is a podcast about storytelling. You always get to write your own story and nobody can stop you from that. And no matter whether you've been fired from a job or whether you have a bad job, that that doesn't write your story for you. There are there are going to be opportunities out there for you to do a rewrite and and create a new create a new narrative for yourself. And 
I've had the good fortune to be able to do that. And, uh, and so even th- that, that's why I have no regrets today, even about life's low points. There's no regrets because there's lessons to be learned from them. But, but just you don't, don't let them define you. you. You define yourself by writing your own story. That's a perfect way to end this segment. And Michael, I appreciate you being on here. This is one of our first episodes, and I appreciate you the trust you've shown in me to come on and, and talk about your life story. And then I've enjoyed the stories, and I always enjoy following you on social media, and we will continue to do so. Likewise. Thank you. Uh, likewise. You're one of my favorite follows on social media. So we'll keep doing that. I appreciate that. that. That's it for today's episode of Real Life and Other Fantasies. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to our guest, Michael Freeman, for sharing his stories and wisdom. Look forward to continuing the conversation online. Thank you. Until next time, remember to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time. Make 1908 House of Wine and Ale your new favorite destination between San Antonio and New Brownfels. With 15 ales on tap, more than 30 craft beers in cans and bottles, and over 70 wines, we have a selection that's perfect for both relaxing with a glass or gathering with your friends. We even have wine on tap. That's right, we have wine on tap. www.1908houseofwine.com Family and animal friendly.